Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to the return of Premier League football as Arsenal keep up their charge at the top of the table. But what does their win over West Ham mean for the future of David Moyes? We'll be talking about Newcastle United and their lofty aspirations, Cody Gakpo's move to Liverpool and what it means for Manchester United. We will also react to Dean Smith's sacking by Norwich City, Everton's defeat to Wolves and much more. This is The Game. Hello, the Premier League is back. We're wedged into the middle of the festive football calendar. Thank you for joining me. I am Hugh Wizencroft with a host of stars from the Times football pages, namely Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. Hello, I think I should ask you before we get onto the football. Did you have a Merry Christmas, Alison? Yeah, it wasn't bad, Hugh, but I did split a tooth in half, which meant that I couldn't eat all the lovely food. And I couldn't even drink all the lovely drink because... (laughs) because um, the tooth split, so it meant it cut my tongue, which meant that anything acidic was painful. So I feel like I've been some sort of Quaker. (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) Yeah, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Positive note to start. First time Alison Rudd has cut her tongue on the game podcast, by the way. So that is a notable moment for all of us. Gregor, how was yours? Well, I definitely ate all the food. I mean, wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know what my New Year's resolution is. I had a great time, yes. I went back home to Scotland. The worst part was driving from uh, London to Edinburgh and back with a, an 18-month <laughs> oh. uh, little girl. My goodness. I think basically every hour we started to stop and that made for hell for, for two <laughs> days, basically. But the bit in between was magnificent. You here? Well, listen, it's a very jolly Christmas so far from the game podcast. <laughs> you two bringing us all the feels. Um, no, mine was was very good. Um, my partner's Polish, so I get two days, if you like, celebrating with her on Christmas Eve. Went to see my dad on Christmas Day. We have had a little break. So we, or, or rather I, I'm in the Cotswolds joining you for the game podcast right now. Lovely walks with the dog and all that stuff before back to work. I'll be at Anfield uh, to watch Liverpool against Leicester. We'll talk about Liverpool a little bit later on. Loads of stuff going on in the Premier League. If you missed it during the World Cup, it didn't really disappoint on its return, did it? Let's start with Manchester City. Just a special moment for Erling Haaland, who continues to astound us all. He has now hit 20 league goals in 14 games 
the fastest anyone, of course, has ever hit that mark. Next nearest is Kevin Phillips, who needed seven more games. Haaland scored twice in City's 3-1 win over Leeds at Ellen Road. Still leaves City five points behind the leaders. Arsenal, who we'll come to in a moment as well. But I think we had to start with the brilliance of Haaland. Motivated, he says, by missing out on the World Cup and watching so many of his mates uh, doing special things on the bigger stage. But my word, um, you know, if he doesn't make it to the next World Cup, he will still, I think, continue to astound us on the domestic stage. Alison, what do you make of him? It just looks so easy for him. And I normally get a little bit, uh, you know, a bit miffed with Guardiola always expecting more from the best players. It's like a broken record with him. It's his shtick. It's what he does. When you see someone play well, he always says, oh, they can play better. But I get it with Haaland because he does look like he's so relaxed. It's it's effortless. And if I was his manager, I'd be thinking, hmm, if he just had um, 2% more concentration, maybe 2% less relaxed, maybe a bit more rush of adrenaline going through him, then um, he'd be, he's already scary, isn't he? But he'd be incredibly scary. So yes, I don't think overall Man City look as good as they have looked under Guardiola in the past, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because, um, but it might be the cause. I mean, if if you've got someone like Haaland in your team, I think that has a subconscious effect on, what everyone else does because you you know he's going to get goals and goals win games so yeah he's 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 phenomenal but what's most phenomenal for me is that it i just feel i agree with guardiola i think he could be better he's phenomenal without you know often doing that much i keep saying that <laughs> it seems so bizarre and that there are many games where you kind of He's barely involved and, you know, for large stretches of the game. And then he just comes to life. He explodes. And, you know, he said last night that he could have scored five. He's probably right. He missed a, a couple of really good chances. One that merely uh, saved well with his feet. And he, I, I'm kind of, but the one thing is I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to like him more and more as well as a kind of, as a character too. You know, we knew he's, there were so many things that when he arrived in the Premier League, you remember that interview he did when he was so, short and terse and curt with the interviewees, basically yes and no answers. And then we heard that that was because of where he was brought up in Norway and it's a kind of, you know, everyone works the land and they don't have much to say that they don't have to say. But he's an engaging guy in front of the, you know, when there's a, a microphone put before him now and he's kind of, you know, he was saying that during the World Cup he was frustrated and he was, he was almost acting like a commentator that nobody could hear in his house. I think he's actually not just in terms of his impact on the pitch. I think he's, I think he's been, he's slotted into Manchester City's dressing room as a big character very, very seamlessly. And that's important as well, particularly when you arrive as someone with such a big reputation and so much is expected of them. But he's, you know, as I say, without doing so much sometimes, sometimes he's missing the odd chance, but, and then others where, you know, he's just always in the right place at the right time. But he's still, 20 goals is insane in 14 games. Um, I've, I've looked at his expected goals this morning and it, it's 13.81. So he's, he's wildly over, you know, uh, overperforming in that, by that metric, but you can't see anything but him continuing to do so. And it's hard to see how he's not going to smash all records this season, particularly playing in this Manchester City team, who, as Alison says, they're not always hitting the heights, but they've got so much creativity 
and they've got Kevin De Bruyne. Some of his little flicks and passes uh, last night were were exquisite. The one without Sirius' foot that, that sent Haaland through, and that's that's one that Melier saved. His little flick round the corner as well, and the build up to another chance. Those two players are made for each other, so. I think he's going to smash all records this season. Yeah, we'll see if my prediction from the start of the season that Kevin De Bruyne would win Player of the Year based on his relationship with Erling Haaland comes to fruition because, to be perfectly honest, if he keeps scoring at this rate, despite the fact he touches the ball about eight or nine times in a game, Erling Haaland will be Player of the Season and that will be undoubted. Although... I think one of the key things is whether Manchester City can win the Premier League title, which, as you sort of alluded to, they're not always at their best. I've been waiting to see, and it feels like straight off the back of the World Cup, it is happening. Manchester City go up at least a gear, gear or two, in terms of what we've seen so far this season, because they've got huge games coming. And I think it will be a period which defines their season. They've got Chelsea on the 5th of January. It's not the next game, they play Everton, but I'm just talking about the big games that they have uh, in the next sort of six weeks. Chelsea on the 5th of January, Manchester Derby on the 14th of January, Spurs at home in their next game. On the 5th of February, they go away to Tottenham. And then on the 15th of February, they are away at Arsenal. If we don't see, in my opinion, a little bit more from Erling Haaland in terms of his general involvement in the play, but also Manchester City just going up a gear or two. Yes, we know they're an absolutely brilliant side. One or two little mistakes, little errors are probably going to get punished more often than not by the biggest sides and the best teams in the Premier League. Then I don't know. I don't know. I think think it's almost incumbent on them now to apply real pressure to Arsenal. But with those fixtures, you almost feel like you'll get to the middle of, of February and Arsenal might have increased their lead in the Premier League. And then, of course, there's big pressure on Manchester City and all of their games. And again, I I have no point to make other than I'll be keeping a close eye on Manchester City in the coming weeks to make sure there is a, a, you know, a, a change. And I feel like that's already happening. I think they are understanding the position they're in. You know, I think Alex Ferguson used to say it all the time, you know, you'd rather be in second place and having to chase at this point in time. We might as well talk about Arsenal next, shouldn't we? Uh, Now we've come on to it. They did actually keep up that pace at the top of the Premier League. Any thoughts that the World Cup might stall Arsenal's momentum? Kind of dispelled in their 3-1 win over West Ham at the Emirates. Uh, Mikel Arteta's men coming from behind, courtesy of goals from Bukayo Saka, Gabriel Martinelli and Eddie Nketiah. Like I say, it was important to settle those nerves, those Arsenal nerves in the title race. Absolutely. And the... the the biggest positive was Eddie and Ketia getting on the score sheet and the way he scored that goal too, which was pretty magnificent. I thought, that, you know, slightly dubious defending by Kerr, the West Ham uh, defender, but it was very smart and a kind of evidence of a player with a goal scorer's instinct, the way he, he reached out to find him in the first place and then spun him, spun to his left and he didn't even look up. He knew where the bottom corner was and he, and he, he hammered it in. And I've said it all season, well, since Arsenal's start to the season, that the two players I thought they could, they would be really struggling if they lost were uh, Gabriel Jesus and Thomas Partey. And obviously Jesus is now going to be out until the end of February. And it's not just his, you know, his goal scoring contributions. It's also his, it's the kind of menace he provides at the top end of the pitch, I think. His energy and his pressing and his link-up play. And 
Eddie Nketiah is not is not the same player. So I, you know, there's going to be a big debate about whether Arsenal should go into the transfer window, whether they need to sign another striker if they really want to go for the Premier League title. I think they should. I think this was a huge boost in the in the short term because Eddie Nketiah played really well and he took that goal brilliantly. Um, but I, I think if they're going to be relying on Eddie Nketiah to try and maintain a title race, you know, and you're hoping that Jesus is going to be back for the last couple of months of the season, I think that, you know, we're talking about them extending the, the gap, gap over City. City have got a track record of putting together ridiculous runs of results. And we're talking like 10, 12, 14 wins on the trot sometimes if they have to, to pip Liverpool. And I think, I think if they're coming from behind, they've got it within them to do it again. And Arsenal need to be, they need more firepower than that, I think. I know they've spread the goals around, but I think they would be wise to sign another striker. The question is, which little piggy is Arsenal? Are they the little piggy who built their house with straw or are they the little piggy who've built their house with bricks? I think it, if something goes wrong, it could all, you know, blow over and the wolf is Man City and they have a big laugh at Arsenal's expense. But I would say so far on the evidence, Arteta is aware of that and... I don't know quite what he does behind the scenes, but he has been very good at building confidence amongst young players. And everything feels slightly orchestrated, but orchestrated with intelligence. So the reintegration of Arsene Wenger, for example, it's like they're building a... He's building... Instead of the past haunting Arsenal, he's trying form that narrative so that the fans are buying into this is where we belong. They've sort of skipped the bad years and they've gone back to remembering how it used to be when they were the Invincibles or, or the years around being in the Invincibles as well. And it's like, it's. I think it's almost a masterstroke really because it won't go away, this sense that, you know, as, as Gregor's described it, you know, they are the wolf at the door, Manchester City, and they know how to do it. And they're only getting stronger because with the addition of Haaland, it's not as if they're they're, they're struggling with injuries or losing players or so on. They're, 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 getting, they're getting, if anything, better. And it seems counterintuitive to think that Arsenal can maintain that gap at the top. But I think Arteta is one step ahead of people who say that. And he's doing these things like the reintegration of Wenger to, to create an environment which says, it sort of reminds the players. So you get an atmosphere now at home games for Arsenal where the atmosphere is one of not hope, but expectation. This sense of roaring on new history, which we deserve. We know we're not, we're not new on the scene here, everybody. We know how to win the title. We used to be the best in the country and we can do it again. And I think if you can keep that going, it's not, it would be wrong to call it smoke and mirrors, I think, because of how well they've done so far. It could completely collapse. But the fact that they've they've absorbed the loss of Jesus, and you know, it was always going to be, what would Nketiah do? Well, he's, you know, he can't do much more, can he? So I think it's, I don't think, I don't think it's impossible that they, well, I, I think it's possible that they could maintain the gap. I really do. But with the proviso of there might be something that Arteta's overlooked that could could smash it all down. It's one game, though. I know. I know they could see. You say they've absorbed it, but 
I just think if you're relying on because who's behind Nketiah now too talking about Martinelli maybe having to go through the middle they're very light there I just I think it would be a r- remarkable if they were to win the Premier League title with having just Eddie Nketiah as their, your lone striker in the next two months I know they've been linked with uh, Mudrik from Shakhtar Donetsk he's another wide forward isn't someone else that would be kind of about rotating maybe moving Martinelli inside obviously it would add to the numbers but I think they need another striker I think it's a it's an interesting one on that because I just think the profile of player that Arsenal has signed maybe isn't the player that is going to go and win you a Premier League anyway. I mean, who are they going to sign other than the extra body in that area? I mean, would they start ahead of Eddie Nketiah who's signing for the club knowing that they're going to be a backup to Gabriel Jesus? Here you go, you get three months starting trying to win us a league and then you'll be on the bench when Gabriel Jesus is back and fit and firing. I mean... It's an awkward time, of course, as well. It's not like the injury happened at the start of preseason to move in January. I just don't know if they get the quality of player that can keep up their charge, even if they do sign an extra body in that area. So I think that is going to be a, a really difficult one for Arsenal to balance. And then, of course, with with a club like them, how much money did they spend on someone who might not necessarily be a starter? You know, I think your mention of Martinelli through the middle might be the solution and they buy the winger that they wanted anyway. We'll see. But actually, to, to go back to Alison's point about Arsene Wenger, absolutely disgraceful, by the way. I can't believe this was reported as a positive with all smiles, waves. I almost spat my drink out. Arsene Wenger, back at his first match since leaving in 2018, the man who built the club into what it is in the current day, hasn't been to a match in five years. A match in five years. I agree. Years. I agree with you. I agree with you, Hugh. And I, I, I felt... I felt a little bit sick in my mouth when I saw it. I agree with you, but it's been painted. It it had the the point is not how not what it is morally, but the effect it had. It's it, they that's my point exactly. They have a, been able to the fans are airbrushing out that awful period. You know, they're talking about a statue of Wenger, and they were prepared to fly higher aeroplanes to fly Wenger out signs above stadiums it is ridiculous but if you can repackage that repackage it and make it a positive thing then it's it's one factor in building a team that believes it can win the title but on the other hand as an outsider i i I thought it was ludicrous i'd love it if they unveiled the statue got arsene up to give his his celebratory speech and he just ripped the fans to shreds. You made my life hell for the last five years. <laughs> I know he wouldn't, but it would be absolutely hilarious. I would be uh, off my chair laughing, but um, he deserves a statue. And the thing that's sad is that it, it didn't come immediately. And the thing that's sad is that he hasn't been to dozens and hundreds of matches over the last five years because they should have a red carpet rolled out for Arsene Wenger whenever he wants to come to that football club. And, you know, for me, on what he's given that club, it was just sad. Strange to see how it was reported as such an amazing thing. Very sad that maybe through his choice, he hasn't been to a game since leaving the club. Um, But there you go. He deserves a statue. I hope it's built. And it was great to see him back. Just wish it was sooner. Before we move on to talk about some of the other clubs towards the top of the table, I think it's a good point that we need to mention West Ham United and how entrenched, how entrenched are West Ham 
in the relegation battle. They're one point above the drop zone. It's four defeats in a row for David Moyes' side. I guess there's going to be pressure on him. Like there is a lot of managers as we go into the the January transfer window and the possibility of a change. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think he's built some credit in the bank over the last few seasons. But actually, I just wondered, a bit like West Ham teams of old, do we suggest this is a squad that is too good to go down? Alison Rudd. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's in, it's interesting. I think the comparison with the mood and the effect that expectation and so on has on a team is interesting, that, that comparison, because I think as far as I'm aware, the West Ham fans haven't turned yet the way that they can. And usually they are, the fans save their ire for uh, the ownership and what they perceive as lack of investment. But actually, if you if you sit down and look at the squad, it's not a bad squad at all. I don't think I mean, there are there are worse squads. There are many. <laughs> there are te- there are teams that cost less and look uh, more unbalanced than West Ham's squad. Uh, you know, everyone everyone you know gushes over Declan Rice. Well, where is he? He's at West Ham. You know. It's not. It's not a bad team. I think it's. I think their their plight is explicable in that it's the the wear and tear of European football that isn't elite European football and what that does to a team. You put all that effort in, don't win it. It's uh, it's tough. But I feel like we're on the cusp of something here, where the minute that the the fans decide to go all in and make the London Stadium a bad place to be for the home team I, I think then it the, the, the wheels could come off so I think I think it's I think there is this there's still this sense of it could turn for West Ham it could turn they could have a a, a, a whoosh up, up the table that is that is still possible that is the sense I get that everyone believes that could happen every single poor result has been explicable and I know all managers do that mostly when they lose um or draw a game they should have won they will they will you know uh, say nice things about the players and and try and keep uh, a positive momentum and all that sort of stuff but i do think often with west ham you, you come away and think actually no they're a bit unlucky with that phase of play that was really good that wasn't too terrible i feel like they are they're not they're not buried yet, but I feel like we're on the cusp of something. If they don't pull together a couple of good results very soon, then it could be a case of plummeting. I don't, I don't know what you think, Gregor and Hugh. Do you, do you feel the fans have reached that point yet? For some reason, I just don't believe they're there. I think, I think David Moyes senses that it's, it's approaching, and I think you can see that in his post-match interviews. You know, he's saying, "Look, we've had a terrific four years. Remember that. Where this is a, I think, I think they've lost four in a row. It's, you know, this is a bad." This is a bad period for us, but we'll turn it around. And I, I, I think he's right. I think they can't score. They've got the biggest XG differential in, in the league, I think. They've got their XG like just, just below 23 and they scored 13 goals. You know, that's that's massive. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that's going to turn immediately, but I think in, it will turn over the course of the season. And part of it is, you know, Skamach has been out. He's, he's kind of... Took a while to settle. It was a big, big money signing. Took a while to settle. Had some injury troubles. Well, he's 
I had a period where we thought he was really going to come to life and then he's had some injury troubles. I think that's the biggest the biggest issue. They're not scoring when they're on top or they're not kind of... They're, they're often kind of had games where they've lost by one goal and you feel that they at least deserved a draw. Liverpool comes to mind recently, actually. So I think Moyes is right. But I think he, I think he can sense that the fans are becoming restless. I don't think it's anything to do with Europe. I've, I've covered them in Europe and they've been excellent by making even though they've made 10 or 11 changes in every game. But doesn't doesn't that, have I, I, a, doesn't that have a cumulative effect, though, Gregor? I, I'm not saying they haven't played well in Europe, but it's... it's no manager will been, tell you... They, they, haven't been, they haven't been great off the back of playing in Europe, though. Exactly. Yeah, but I, I don't know if you can use that. I know, I know travelling and, and, you know, sometimes there's been a few games where he's had to throw in his big hitters with, for the last half an hour on a Thursday night to win the game, but he has made 10 nine or ten changes in the last game 11 in every game it's not it shouldn't be fatigue I know it can be as I say mental fatigue is perhaps a, an issue but I don't think that's really an excuse and it's going to come back they're they're, they're through to the next stage and they've, they've got European football and you know in the new year as well so I don't think that can be the late the, the blame can be laid there I just think that they're not they're not converting the chances they're creating chances and not converting them and that's what has to change and it might mean signing signing another attacking player, another striker in the in, in January. I, re- I remember when Jared Bowen signed in January when they were in a real relegation battle, and he didn't score loads of goals, but he made a big impact, and uh, and that was in January 2020. A big impact in terms of his kind of creativity and his energy and drive. And they've been linked with Ben Brera and Diaz in the past, and I think he would be an absolute no-brainer. I think he's he's got very similar numbers to. To Jared Bowen in the past, Moyes is not scared of dipping into the second tier if he thinks there's a good enough player. I think someone like that would would provide a boost for them in the second half of the season. Blackburn wouldn't like to sell him though. I tend to agree, but I think he's got he's going into having six months left. So, yeah, you either keep Ben Burton Diaz to the end of his contract and see if he gets you into the Premier League. Blackburn doing very well at the moment, or you cash in and see if you can bring someone in who can stay with the club a little bit longer. For me, though, David Moyes' future at West Ham United will be decided in the next four games. It's that simple. They host Brentford. That's tomorrow as we speak. They're away at Leeds. They've got an FA Cup game against Brentford. Um, But the next two league matches, Wolves away, Everton at home. And I think you need at least seven points out of Brentford, Leeds, Wolves and Everton. Nine is fantastic for them. I think they'll fly up the table with that. Obviously, if they can win them all, you know, the good times are back and they can think much more positively, but I'm not sure the way things are going at the moment, they will do that. But I think seven is is perfectly reasonable and capable for a squad of of the talent that West Ham United have. Six points, you might get away with it. Less, I can't see him surviving, I'll be honest, but I'm sure we'll revisit it on the... Uh, me positively hopes that West Ham United can pull away from things. Anyway, up next on the game podcast, uh, we'll be talking about Liverpool and Newcastle United. A little bit later on, we will come to that big game towards the bottom between Wolves and Everton. We'll also talk Norwich City's new manager. Stay with us. And remember, if you enjoy the game podcast, make sure you're subscribed. Okay, let's move on uh, to big news concerning Liverpool. Cody Yakpo says he wants to create beautiful moments for Liverpool after he completed a move from PSV Eindhoven. He will, in fact, join Anfield at the start of January, a reported fee 
of up to £44 million. It's another great deal uh, done by Liverpool with minimal fuss. And the person that broke the story in the Times newspaper, Paul Joyce, uh, joins us now. Paul, tell us how this all materialised, because it's another deal that Liverpool got done by stealth. Yeah, I think so. I think they've been following him for for a while, and I think it was a, a combination of factors that meant that they've sort of brought it forward from uh, the summer when they were maybe planning to planning to do it then. The injury to Diaz, the setback that he had in his recovery from a, a knee uh, problem that's going to keep him out to March, coupled with the fact that Jota's out until then anyway with a calf injury, I think that left Liverpool feeling a little bit short. In those wide areas on the left, I think the need to make the Champions League this season is another factor in why they've... They've done it now. And I think that probably the key factor for Liverpool is that the price wasn't outlandish for somebody who, who did well at the World Cup. An initial fee of £37 million rising to 44 is very reasonable by modern-day standards. And um, I think PSV have had some financial problems, so maybe that was one of the reasons why it was lower. But I think it made sense because of those three factors to bring to bring forward the, uh, the interest from the summer and and get him off the market before the window opened. And um, yeah, now it's we need to see how he fits into the team and, and whether or not he does make a, a big difference in the push for the top four. And that leads me basically to the next question. I wanted to try and understand how important a move this could be for Liverpool in the wider context of where they're going as a club. They've brought in, you mentioned Diaz already, the likes of Darwin Nunez. There seems to be a refreshing, if you like, of the squad the likes of Fabio Carvalho, younger players in the side, even more backup players in terms of squad depth, I think Liverpool brought in last summer. But then you see a signing like this and you wonder, is this a player who is supplementary when everyone's fit, who adds to that squad, bolsters it? Or are they going to be an important cog in the starting eleven in the future of Liverpool? How do you view this signing? Well, I think it's very much up to the player, isn't it? To, to prove that he that he can be that he's been given a, an opportunity now. Um, I think you're right to say there has been a sort of move to bring down the average age of Liverpool squad. A lot of the signs have tended to be younger players in in or you know 23 around that sort of age and in recent windows. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing for when everybody is fit is that they have so many options now how is Klopp going to you know keep everybody happy and and how is he going to manage the minutes I I think looking forward Roberto Firmino's out of contract earlier in uh, is out of contract at the end of the the season so I think one of the the questions that Klopp will get asked um, at his press conferences in the coming days will be is is the this sign in a sign that Roberto Firmino might be moving on in the summer. There has been contract talks with him going on, but there's been no resolution as yet. Um, my feeling is that Klopp would probably like him to stay. He will feel he does something different to to uh, the other forward players that he has. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out. But there was a good stat from uh, Michael Reader Opta last night that said that the forward players, by which means Gapco, um, Diaz, Jota, Firmino, Salah and Nunes have scored 191 goals between them since the start of last season, which is an insane number, really. 
And I guess that competition for places when Diaz and Jota do come back is what Klopp is hoping, pushes the squad on and, and brings back the ruthlessness that Liverpool have maybe missed at times this season. That's why they find themselves a little bit off the pace in the chase for uh, the top four. Paul, can I ask a question just to be devil's advocate? Is the feeling up there that you could turn this slightly on its head and say Liverpool are becoming a slight caricature in that they seem to ignore midfield, but were top heavy yeah, I think, <laughs> in attackers. I think, no, I, 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 I agree with that. I think it probably comes down to um, availability in, in, in some respects. I think everybody recognises that there's a need to uh, improve the midfield. They tried to do it with Tuchemani last summer. He went to Real Madrid. They're obviously going to go for Bellingham this summer. And we, you know, we've yet to, we don't know how that one's going to play out. And imagine top four is going to have to have a bearing on that. Whereas they didn't have a plan B for Tushimani last summer, they're going to have to need a plan B for, uh, in case they don't get Bellingham this one, they're going to have to have other, other players in, in the mix because Oxley Chamberlain, Cater, Milner are all coming up, are all out of contract in the summer. As well, Jordan Hansen not getting any younger. Thiago's had fitness issues. He's going to be so important over the, the next few months. If they can keep him fit, then that will probably be as important as as the, the signing of Gapco in many respects. Fabinho's not really been quite at it so far this season. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus on how he ends the season. season. So I think... Yeah, I understand why people will, will feel like, do they really need another attacker midfield to the area where where there's been so much focus and where the, the team hasn't maybe functioned as well as it might so far this season. But I think it's just solely down to availability at this point in the, in the season and in the transfer window and the midfielder that they want isn't available um, right now. And that, that's going to be Bellingham and the price and what they can offer him that other teams can't offer him is going to be make these next few months crucial. Okay, Paul Joyce, appreciate you joining us on the game podcast, talking about a big move for Liverpool and some interesting points moving forward. Alison, I'll start with you. Good signing for Liverpool. Gregor, I'll come to you in a few moments on the context of Manchester United missing out on this signing because I think the fans enjoyed it from that element as well, Alison. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's like the good old days, isn't it? When you'd you'd attract players simply because A, Liverpool were more beautiful, sexier, won all the things and, you know, either the player had been a Liverpool fan since they were six months old or their family were. So... That's good. And I remember I remember in the dark days when Man United were winning everything, there was a lot of worry amongst Liverpool fans that we'd, we'd, we'd lose out on the next generation of footballers because none of them would be Liverpool fans. They wouldn't grow up as Liverpool fans because Liverpool weren't winning anything and weren't getting the exposure and didn't look like a, a fantastic option or somewhere to aspire to play. So it is wonderful that that has continued. And, yeah, I mean, every fan loves pinching a player from under the nose of someone else, especially when the um, the manager is the same nationality as the player that's been signed. That's always good. So, yes, fantastic. But, I mean, I, I love the fact that Yakpo, if we're going to call him that, is so versatile. Um, I think we saw him mainly centrally in the World Cup, but he, he can play on either wing and, and, uh, and a variety of sort of mini roles within those attacking formations that are available these days. 
there's just part of me that I think, I mean, I, I mentioned it to Paul that it is almost a caricature now that we're so top heavy with incredibly talented and fortunately versatile forward players. But I mean, are we just going to bypass midfield altogether? Is that, <laughs> it just feels a bit, <laughs> a bit strange. I mean, the, the, it's an aspirational defence, especially when you've got Alisson in goal, and it's a completely aspirational attack. And it is still a joy to watch Liverpool when they are going forward or in the transition because there are so many options on the field because they have it's, it's not just one target man or one player who can do something exciting with the ball. There's a host of them, and that is wonderful. But you do feel when we're we're suffering from a counter that there's just no, there's nothing with real bite, real bite in midfield to balance things up. So you know you always want more, don't you? Of course, I'm pleased, but and it's not a lot of money, so it doesn't matter. It's not like it's taking money away from a pot marked midfield, but it is. It does feel like come on, we we, we really need it. Do need to get Bellingham and and maybe someone else as well, for it not to be, as I put it, a caricature. I would kind of be amazed if Jude Bellingham went to Liverpool, but that is a conversation uh, for another day. Gregor, Manchester United, possibly, possibly, I'll only say possibly, the big losers in all of this. We don't know who they're going to sign, if anyone, in January. Um, but I think a lot of fans were looking forward to the prospect of Cody Akpo signing for Manchester United, and that had been heavily reported. But I think they've been most hurt by uh, links to re-sign Memphis Depay. I've seen stories today of fans basically saying over our dead bodies. But it, but it is an interesting one just because, you know, it, it seems to be, and I think this is a, I can say this as a Manchester United fan, if you like, the major concern is, you know, the new hot stars in football, you know, the ones with the bright futures. Manchester United never seem to, at the moment, really get their hands on those players. Yes, they signed Jadon Sancho for a lot of money. Yes, they signed Anthony for a lot of money. But when you see the signings coming through that are sort of, you know, as as was mentioned earlier on, quite a reasonable amount of money for Cody Akpo, Man United never really in for those types of players. So they're either going to have to spend massively or they're just not, not going to get these these bright new stars. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that leaps out about Gagpo signing is, is, the, is the fee. It seems like an absolute bargain. I mean, you know, Alisson's points are all spot on about it looking top heavy and you're wondering where all these players, these attacking players are going to fit in, particularly ones who can, who like to play wide uh, primarily. But it's it's a it's a kind of no brainer that fee. If if he if he gets them into the Champions League, then it's it's a, it proves to be a bargain. And the same would be true of Manchester United. So I agree with you. And look, a part of this is going to be based on the the recent history of Manchester United and the chaos and their fall. They you know they look very much like they're they're on the way back up under Eric Ten Hag. There's been some great improvements this season, but it might take a little while before they are you know, kind of returned to to being a club that that the best young players in Europe are going to choose um, if if they have all the choices available to them. So, you know, obviously the the, the link with Eric Ten Hag, I think he, in Paul Joyce's piece, they, they were represented by the same agent as well. Um, you know, all the kind of, all the all the, the dots seem to join up to suggest that Gagpo would, would go to Old Trafford. And, and so, yeah, it has got to be seen as a blow. But you have to say as well, we've said for so long that, that this is what Liverpool do. They, they complete signings with with minimal fuss and 
Manchester United have still have yet to convince us that they are a club who at the point where they're where they're ready to do the same. They they still seem to be the club who pay the the top 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 dollar and not always successfully. So well, there has been improvement. You look at Casemiro, and we, you know, there've been lots said over, after his performance in the last game that although they paid a huge sum of money for a player who's in their thirties, he's going to be he's he's been a hugely important figure for them already so far, and will be, I'm sure, for the next couple of seasons. But you know, they're, they're not, they've not come off more often than not. So Manchester United do still need to convince, I think, their fans and you know every, every onlooker that they are. A, you know, successful in the transfer market. And this is another one that got away. Yeah, bad times for Manchester United fans. Uh, Cody Gakpo hoping to bring good times to Anfield. And the good times roll on for Newcastle United. They're next up. They got an impressive win at Leicester, dominating 3-0 up with only 32 minutes on the clock. A Chris Wood penalty, goals from Miguel Almiron and Juelington made it a boxing day to savour for Newcastle supporters who were heard chanting, we're going to win the league. Martin Hardy joins us uh, from the Times to discuss uh, all that's going on at St. James's Park. Eddie Howe's been keeping a lid on things, Martin. Um, but I think those fans are pretty serious about great achievements that Newcastle can have this season. Maybe not necessarily the title, but who knows? Well, what are your thoughts on it? If they keep this up, should they be in that conversation? I, th- I, I think from Newcastle fans, there may have been an element of tongue-in-cheek when they're singing that song. However, the momentum of that side at the minute is such that people are starting to think anything is possible. The change in ownership meant that just over, what, 13, 14 months ago, people suddenly thought at some point Newcastle United, owned by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, will win the Premier League title, but they did not expect it to come this soon. Um, for the first time after that game, Eddie Howe did not temper expectations and he said, yeah, we should dream, the supporters should dream, that's what it's all about. Realistically, I think if you just sit down with the, most Newcastle fans, they would say it's a tiny bit too early. P- possibly not because of a limitation of that side who still have Isaac to come back and still have Callum Wilson to come back and still have St Maximum to come back and still potentially could spend money in, in the January transfer window. But just because of the points total of Arsenal, the relentlessness of Manchester City, and the foreman of Erlen Haaland. I think that means it's, it, it is slightly tongue-in-cheek, but they can see where that club is going and it's going there at, at an, an incredible pace at the minute. It is. It is going at an incredible pace. The, the football is is very good. And you almost feel that, you know, it can't be an anomaly now for Newcastle United because of their ability to back up what's going on on the pitch, especially in this January transfer window now. I mean, a lot of fans will be looking to see where Newcastle can strengthen. It's an, it's an interesting one. Do you stick or twist? Playing so well, I think a comfort amongst the squad, a spirit there. Is it the right time in January to bring in new players? And do Newcastle need to bring in new players? And then, of course, the second question really is what level are we going to see superstars start arriving at St. James's Park? What they've done so far is they've got the balance really well between developing through Eddie Howe's relentless coaching, the likes of Sean Longstaff, obviously Joe Linton, Fabian Scher and Miguel Almiron to become real top-notch Premier League players. That has been aided and abetted by the signings of Sven Botman, um, Nick Pope, uh, Bruno Gomeris. So they've spent, they've spent heavily which people sometimes overlook. They're averaging £107 million per transfer window at the minute. The average transfer spend of PSG and Man City since their takeovers is £42 So it is unsustainable. 
However, they have momentum at the minute and they do still want to improve. If you're talking fantasy times and they were going to go, right, you know what, we might go for this. They have looked repeatedly at uh, Kravitalia, the Napoli winger. They have watched and bid for James Madison. There is a little bit of interest in Jorginho at, 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 um, at Chelsea. And you think, wow, if you go for those three, would you push on and have a realistic chance of catching Arsenal Man City? Perhaps... You may get close to them, but you may also risk what is an incredible team spirit. And they are very conscious of that. They are also very conscious that Napoli don't really want to sell this transfer window. Leicester are in a pretty similar boat with relegation fears still uh, amongst their considerations. And at the same time, they are still slightly constricted by financial fair play as they look to boost their revenue streams to accommodate all this, the, the, the income that they, the additional income that they could have from their new owners. I think it will be it's it's always been the phrase from Eddie Howe has always been evolution, not revolution. And the, the, the bond he has inside that dressing room is everybody you speak to around the place, it's really, really tight, which would suggest that now going for three or four players is not the path that they want to take. You might see one or two come in. From now on, they have to be really, really good additions to even just to get a game because the team is playing so well. Um, but the top four finish the Champions League qualification, which they did not really think was possible this summer, that's definitely all to play for now. And therefore, I, I don't see why they can't make the top four now. I think you know what's coming. Did you people just, they just stopped talking about the sports washing <laughs> project now? Yes. Do you think that's because of the success and it feels like, well, I don't want to be the, not you personally, <clears throat> but the person who might bring it up might be thinking, I don't want to be the gloomy person in the room everyone's talking about potential to get Champions League football and how well Eddie Howe's coaching and it sort of grates to be the one to say the negative question. Do you think if they were still struggling towards the bottom half of the table, people would feel more open to discussing what the project is and what it means? Uh, sorry, yet, yet, yet to say yes, was to contradict myself slightly, there are still some supporters that I speak to are uncomfortable with the situation, but that is a, 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 t a small minority to answer your question, it's difficult to say why. The, the, you do have the the Ashley effect in that for 14 years. By the way, it wasn't all rubbish for 14 years, and I might actually, but it largely was. So yeah, yeah, that is part of the 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 picture in terms of the supporters wanting to forget what that was like and enjoy the situation at the moment. It, it is surprising sometimes that nobody wants to concentrate on the political element of the ownership in Newcastle United. It's just disappeared off off the radar in the northeast for the for the most part every now and then it will flicker back on but and i think because you have Eddie Howe who's a, a likable manager because you have a team that's doing well because the supporters are fairly happy it seems to be the, the forgotten topic and I, you know there are you, you can speculate on probably about three or four different reasons as to why that is the case you may find that the Qatar World Cup goes ahead. Everybody, and this is not necessarily my argument, the Qatar World Cup goes ahead despite um, all the concerns over the human rights records of that country. And we watched the, one of the greatest finals ever and nobody's talking a, a great deal about Qatar and its um, uh, its attitudes towards homosexuals or women by the finish of the tournament. And perhaps Newcastle fans are coming on the back of that and thinking, well, if you can have a World Cup in Qatar, we can be owned by Saudi by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, and it was something that ultimately the Premier League and the, and the British government left left through. I think that is probably as near to the argument of the fans as you would get at the moment.
uh, not so very long ago, uh, it was March actually, um, Eddie Howe said he was going to go away and read up on Saudi Arabia and the um, topic of sports washing. Has he ever come back and said anything at all after that? No. Sorry to be so succinct, no. There's, there's not, <laughs> not really been anything further further on from that. So no one's ever said to him, in the, I mean, I'm sure you get round tables with him where it's a bit more intimate and, and the conversation flows a bit more... <laughs> A bit more smoothly than it does in a formal press conference, where it's just really we, hard to get a dialogue we, going. We don't really the the, the roundtable format isn't what it isn't what we are kind of isn't the structure of um, press conferences at Newcastle these days. I think it's kind of the, the, the subject that just every now and then pops up, like for like for an example when the what was with hindsight was a pretty poor decision to make the third strip the the white and green of that bore an awful lot of similarity to Saudi Arabia's change kit. Um, that didn't seem the brightest of situations, but as it would happen, that was a week or two before um, we faced Eddie Howe. He was asked about it. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what he said, but, you know, it kind of wasn't my decision. Um, it's it's just, it, it's not a topic that comes up too much because I think, it, in fairness, it was, it was dealt with very heavily before the takeover came up and it was dealt very heavily in the, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of it. When I interviewed Alan St. Maximin um, via Zoom when the first team were in Riyadh, I spoke to him about it and the, I put the question to him, is this something the players worry about? And I, it was a, a, quite a telling answer from a football. He said, no, you worry about your form, you worry about playing, you worry about so many other things, that that, that isn't something you do put to the forefront of your mind. And I think there has been repeated questions to the point now we are 13 or 14 months into it and we are reporting on a team that could potentially win the title or finish second or third. And as football reporters, we have asked the questions about Saudi Arabia, but we also have to concentrate on reporting on this team and the dynamics of it and what's got better and what's working and the balance between the improvement inside the team and, and, and the, the significance of the investment of money at the same time. Over the, the period of those 14, 15, 16 months plus however long it took to get the particular through. I feel we've covered it politically from a political standpoint, but also from a sporting standpoint as well. And I think that's where it is at the, at the moment. OK, Martin Hardy from The Times. Thank you so much for joining us for the latest on Newcastle United. Appreciate it. OK, cheers. Thank you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Monday.com. 
Well, Julian Lopetegui got off to a dream start as Wolves manager this weekend. Um, Wolves came from behind to beat Everton 2-1 at Goodison Park. Ryan ate Nori uh, with a dramatic goal. What, 95th minute, I think it was. Victory for Lopetegui. Lifts his side off the bottom of the table. They're now one point behind Frank Lampard's side and it has piled extra pressure, hasn't it, on the Everton boss. I have to say, though, Wolves weren't great. I can't really say they deserve to win this match. Everton were far better, I think, which is why defeat felt like a dagger in the heart for their sides. And I think both sets of fans would have seen this match as probably their best chance of picking up three points right now. So obviously the Toffees heartbroken with that result and that late defeat as well. What did you make of the game? Before we talk about the context for the two managers, one incoming, one possibly outgoing, what did you make of the football we saw from both sides, Gregor? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that Everton, whenever they're at home, Everton tend to be the team who are very much on, you know, on the front foot and dominant. But as, again, it, like a lot of the teams at the bottom, it's, it's, it's where the goals are going to come from. And we've spoken about this for much of the season. Neil Mopai is someone who will have kind of hot, hot streaks, but I'm not sure if they can rely on him to score the goals they need to, to survive. And the same is... It's true of Wolves. You know, I said that West Ham have, have scored 13 goals. These are two of the three teams who've scored fewer. They've, uh, Wolves only scored 10. Uh, Everton have scored 12. And I think that when when Everton... Everton have had a, re- a reasonable, reasonably solid foundation this season, to be fair, but they were missing Conor Cody, obviously, because of um, his, he's on loan from, from Wolves. But they need, they'll need to score more goals in the second half of the season. And, and when you're hearing that you know, the kind of financial constraints that Everton are under, that they might need to kind of go for loan signings, it, it does make you make you worry. And it, also the manner of the 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 win for Wolves was was huge. You know, it narrows the gap between them and the table. Uh, 95th minute is like as you say, an absolute dagger in the heart for Everton and a huge kind of uplift for Wolves when you're going forward now. And I think I think you're right. I think the they were lucky to win, but they will take it any day. And you saw Lopetegu's <laughs> celebrations on the touchline. A magnificent start in your first game in the Premier League. And there's very little better than a, a 95th minute winner. I, well, yes, exactly. But they, I mean, you're both right. I suppose Everton were the better team. But what have, what have Wolves been doing? What have Wolves been doing? They've been playing really nice football and losing for too long. I, I don't think I've seen a Wolves defeat and I haven't thought... How did that happen? I really like most of their players. So it's about blooming time. They just played to be clinical and show a bit of guts and uh, resilience. And I don't know, there was a bit of uh, attitude amongst the players, I think, that has been lacking. So it's only one game, new manager, great start. But I think if if you were to bottle what it was that Wolves were missing, it was that ability to turn quite elegant, intelligent players into something with with a bit of oomph and bite and, you know, just that, that thing you need to get a win when maybe you don't deserve it. And that's what they got. So I wouldn't, if I was emotionally attached to Wolves, I wouldn't mind that, that it wasn't a great performance because what was great was a, a switch in demeanour and attitude. And that's what you need when you're a team that are comprised of the sort of players they are and you're at the wrong end of the table and you think, oh my goodness, we don't we don't have the alchemy here. We've, we've, we've got the wrong sort of players for a relegation battle. 
suddenly they look like they might have the attitude for a relegation battle. And I think that's really important. Yes, I agree with you to an extent. I think the celebrations, you, there is a moment that can be a catalyst for a team. And if you look at Julian Lopetegui's teams, you know, over the course of time, the first part of his great teams, he's been a great manager, but it is that commitment it is that extra intensity. It is that extra bit of fight. You know, he has been often an underdog coach, if you like. Um, his teams have been more than the sum of their parts. He will need to do that now at Wolves for them to fly up the table, I think, at this point in time. For all of the clubs in sort of the bottom seven, survival is is absolutely number one. Will they be good enough to do that? Um, we'll see. We'll see. They need more goals. They certainly need more goals. They need to take some of their big chances. Diego Costa had a great one, but look, anyway, they won the game. I think on reflection, it is more about Everton and what happens next for Frank Lampard. If you were manager of one of those clubs in trouble, wouldn't you, and you, and you were parachuted in, wouldn't you quite like to have at your disposal the players that Wolves have? Wouldn't you think, oh, I can do something with this? You would, but actually, if you look at the squads down there, there aren't, there are sort of a couple of squads that you're like, this is a weak squad. It's the Premier League. I mean, a lot of the teams you think, I don't mind, I don't mind watching that player. Wouldn't mind using that player if I was a coach. Yeah, okay, you're probably right in that Wolves maybe have a little bit more depth. And in reality, on, on talent, they're probably a mid-table squad. I, I get where you're coming from, but I do think you've got to go out there and earn it. And we've seen too many teams in the Premier League with talent who go out on a Saturday. They don't really put it in. That's Some of them get by. You know, I think of the likes of Aston Villa now under Unai Emery. That will be a culture shock under Steven Gerrard. They didn't go out on a Saturday and put their best foot forward and ended up getting their manager the sack with a squad full of talented players. I think the first building block for Emery, for Lopetegui, is the work rate, the commitment, the aggression, not wanting to lose, you know, the battle before you can work on the, the quality of the football. And so I think we saw a little bit of that from Wolves. Yes, it's an important step. But um, on another day, they do lose that match. So I don't want to take too much from it. That's why I say I think on reflection, it is more about the pressure on Frank Lampard, three straight Premier League defeats, only three wins in the Premier League all season, massively concerning. And whether he will now survive this, you spoke about the financial constraints. Maybe that is an element of why Frank Lampard will be given a little bit more time. Uh, I spoke about David Moyes' job. For me, it is also similar when it comes to Everton. The next four games, massively important. Okay, you don't want to be playing Manchester City at a time like this. You can probably chalk that one off, but who knows? Brighton, Southampton, and then, as we mentioned, West Ham United, huge game. That takes them up to January the 21st, where you think the club may think, look, if things are going desperately wrong, we still have the last 10 days of the transfer window to make a managerial appointment, but also maybe to bring in a couple of players on loan right at the end of the window who can maybe spark the season into life. So I think we are getting to a critical mass when it comes to Frank Lampard's future. Gregor, am I wrong? I thought it was funny we, were, we, we spoke about this Earlier in the season, I remember when Jesse Marsh was under great pressure, and and I think uh, Stephen Gerrard as well. You know, there was a, there was a little flurry of of managerial changes, and I, I think he's just from what he did at the end of last season, he is going to get a little bit more time. I think I know that 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 kind of connection that we we spoke about that he'd built with with Everton fans is is kind of looking very fragile now. But I think he's going to get a little bit more time than he perhaps other otherwise would have because of. 
the atmosphere and what what was generated last season and and the way that he managed to keep them up. But it's it's, it's still finely balanced. I mean, they're they're two points behind Bournemouth, who you know they've just had a, a takeover. They've just given Gary O'Neill the job to the end of the season, and you know three points behind Leicester. It's it's very, it's it's very tight, very very tight indeed. And there's a couple of results. Look, Everton on a really bad run. They've they've won one of one of one of the last eight. They need to get a couple of results kind of close together to 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 climb the table to buy a little bit more time. But it is so tight, and it's going to be. I think it's going to ebb and flow because there's very little between maybe eight teams at the in the at the bottom of the table there, and I think I think a lot will will hinge on January as well. I think, you know, there are a number of teams who are really struggling for goals and are going to have to do something about that in the January transfer window and Everton are very much one of them. Yep, I tend to agree with you, to be perfectly honest. I do I just look at these games and think, especially the game against Southampton, that is must win. And there is a possibility of picking up points against Brighton and West Ham United as well. So, uh, so yeah, massively key uh, to see what happens next at Everton. Before we go, guys, um, yeah, it's, it's been almost like what could happen to a couple of managers in the Premier League in terms of their future. In the Championship, we know what's happening with Dean Smith's future because he's been sacked as Norwich City head coach. We did want to just finally end the podcast by talking about it. I think it's important, a size of club that Norwich City is in terms of where they want to be, which is back in the Premier League. What happens next there? Assistant manager Craig Shakespeare, first team coach Liam Bramley, also leaving Carrow Road. Steve Weaver, Alan Russell taking interim charge of the team. Things haven't been going great. Monday's two undefeat at Luton was a third defeat in four. It left the sporting director, Stuart Webber, to say it was a tough decision, one we felt was necessary to give ourselves the best possible chance of achieving our objective of promotion to the Premier League this season. And really your reactions to it. I think there has been a lot of criticism, not just in his time at Norwich City over the style of football and the fact that he wasn't really getting the best out of the pretty good group of players when it comes to a championship squad, but also really that he didn't have much of an impact in the Premier League and kind of treaded water until their relegation. There is also, I think, the possibility of bringing in some very good coaches at Norwich City, which maybe forced them into this. Uh, Scott Parker has been mentioned, Sean Dice, Stephen Gerrard as well, and Chris Wilder as possible team, uh, possible new managers to come into the team. Gregor, what are your thoughts on Smith's exit and who might take over? Yeah, I think it was probably the right choice, If it seemed, although it seems very harsh. You think about a club in the championship making a change when they're fifth in the table. It it does seem <laughs> pretty bizarre, but it's it's a kind of unique landscape in the championship now. When you're a club that's that's got that's got um, Premier League parachute payments, who's been recently relegated, and there's a kind of desperation to go straight back up. And of course, Norwich have done that twice recently. But it's also it's all to do with the atmosphere. They've won once since the middle of September at, at Carrow Road. You know, Dean Smith said that he stopped. He stopped bringing his family to car to home matches or to any games, basically, because he knows that they're going to hear him getting a lot of of abuse. And Norwich is a strange club in that regard, in that you know, there's there's a kind of picture of Norwich as this family club. You know, one club city, a big club that's got that's got ambition, but it can they can turn they can turn very very quickly. I've you know I've covered the championship for a number of years now, and I remember Alex watching Alex Neal, Alex Neal's team at the kind of tail end of his era there, you know, someone who took them up 
in great style and it turns very quickly. It turned with Chris Hutton very quickly. It was close to turning with Daniel Fark in, in, at the start of his time at Norwich. Where I remember being there and they were kind of shouting attack, attack, attack because he was building play from the back and obviously it came good and they, they although although his his teams in the Premier League were, were a disaster in the Championship, they won with great style. There is a kind of, a, a great kind of, a real heightened expectancy at Norwich, they expect to be challenging at the very top end of the table, and that's been heightened even more by the promotions of quick succession and parachute payments, as I say. But I just think there there comes a point where there's a point of no return, really, when the atmosphere is turned so badly. And Dean Smith acknowledged as much. He didn't acknowledge the fans after the, the defeat against Luton. I think he knew that that it was it was going to be very very hard to turn around. So. Although, as I say, it's it's very very strange to say it's the right decision to sack a manager when they are fifth in the in the league and still. Although there's a big gap to second, understand that I think it's twelve points just now. They're still, you know, in the championship that can be closed, but it didn't look like it was going to be. And I think it probably was the right decision for both parties. Alison, what do you think about the names who could possibly replace Dean Smith? Steven Gerrard, I know you're a fan, uh, but also the likes of Chris Wilder, Sean Dyche would be interesting. For me, I think they have to go after Scott Parker, given his promotion record from the championship, even if he doesn't go up this year, would probably put them in a strong position with a decent bit of spending next year to go up once again. But th- there are very good candidates out there, including, it's being whispered, the likes of Daniel Farker, who could possibly make a return. So just finally, for today's game podcast, is there a name that you would like to see go into Carrow Road? I think they, I think Norwich should be punished and, and everyone turn them down, actually, because... They're, they're, it's like when you're in um, people who are in abusive relationships, your new normal is to accept things that are wrong. And it seems to be Norwich like they just love getting out of the championship and is the Premier League, but they do not approach the Premier League properly and they do not spend properly, even though they could. And they accepted that they're this yo-yo team, which, you know, financially can tick along as long as they keep getting promoted back to the Premier League. So whoever takes the job, because of the size of the club and the quality of players and their familiarity with getting out of the championship, they will get out of the championship. But what's the point? What's the point? Because as soon as you get to the Premier League, you'll have your feet cut from underneath you. You won't be given the chance to build. You'll be told the players you've got are good enough when you know perfectly well they won't be. So... If anyone accepts the job, we'll be doing so almost on a short-term mentality, which is it'll be a job, A, a job, B, well, wellish paid job. You'll get a little feather in your little cap saying you won promotion from the championship. But it's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac after that. And they'll pretend it's not. And I, I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure... Part of what went wrong was Dean Smith saw that there wasn't really a project there. It's, you know, short-termism. We expect to get out of the championship. You'll get us out of the championship. And we quite like being the team that play the nicest football in the championship. We don't really like your style of play. Uh, it's, it's, and he knew it wasn't going anywhere. So I, I, would, I would say to everybody, do what the train staff are doing and, 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 and don't take it. Quickly, there, there have been, like, there was a project in Norwich, and it's, but it's become kind of badly fractured by actually winning promotion to the Premier League 
up until those moments, it's been all roses. But when they get there, they just don't know how to bridge that gap. I think they're. Well, they do of, know. They do know, Gregor. They just don't want to spend any money. Well, they're. But I think they can be admired for having want to to remain sustainable. So, like, uh, you know, the one, what, the you one mistake be, they made. Can, the one, made, one mistake they made. The one mistake they made. They did spend money, and that you know that's another thing that was thrown at them last season, and they spent a lot of money last season. But the one thing is that they've not spent it well. They did for a long period of time, and more recently they haven't. And the other the other thing is they want to, along with that expectation, the kind of, I don't know, I, I almost want to use the word entitlement. They like they, they do think that they deserve to be. Stuart Weber said they want to be in the top 26 clubs in the country, but that's not good enough. They want to be in the top 22, the fans do. So that's where they are now, and it's not an easy thing to maintain. So, you know, I think they've almost, they've almost you know, brought, brought this up on themselves. They've been... The, the, been so open and so kind of transparent about everything and a very well-run football club in many regards but now their fans are realizing that they they kind of still want more um two names that you, i don't sure you did mention russell martin hugh who will bring this would bring the style i'm not sure he'd bring the substance and mark robbins at coventry both of them have links to the club and mark robbins i feel is someone who he has a big job in him still He's had he's been around for quite a while and he's always done a really, really good job, minus kind of small periods at Huddersfield and Scunthorpe, but he's done a magnificent job at Coventry. But he's you know, he has a real connection there. But I think he played for Norwich. They're a club that he could bring it back into the Premier League. And I think I think he deserves a crack at a job like that, and I think he'd be a good option. And David Wagner's just... the bookie's favourite, of course. Yes, Weber, the Weber link there being that, you know, Stuart Weber was at Huddersfield and, and brought him to the championship in the first place. So that's that's eminently possible. I think the style and the substance you mentioned, Gregor, is important. But um, yeah, Russell Martin, like you say, lots of style, maybe not as much substance. If you're looking at Swansea's results at the moment, even when he was at MK Dons, in fact, um, I just don't think you can look past the credentials of managers like Gerard Dyche, Scott Parker. I mean, Scott Parker in particular, Dyche, who's been in the Premier League for so many years, Steven Gerrard with what he's done at Rangers and where he wants to go with his career and the big name. I just, I, I think Mark Robbins would, yeah, it's an emotional choice. You know, Russell Martin's played for Norwich as well, but I, I think the style will be important. And again, I think the big credentials of some of those big names are the reason that maybe I focused in on, on them. But um it would be a great job for someone, I think, um, with an upwardly mobile club that wants to achieve Premier League status and happy to put at least championship level spending behind that to achieve it. So um, we, we shall see. We shall see what happens with Norwich City. That is the end of today's game podcast. Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd, thank you so much for being with me. My thanks to Martin Hardy and Paul Joyce as well. And to all of you for listening. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, hit the notification button. You won't miss an episode. You can also make sure you're subscribed by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game for more of our award-winning journalism, which is back fully in domestic football and immersed now as we get towards January. Those FA Cup matches as well. We'll be back very, very soon, uh, just after the new year, to review the next round of matches in the Premier League. So we will see you then. Thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.